We've had a good run, haven't we? Um, back into uh, John, remember we started uh, beginning of February um, in John 10. Um, we've been working through John 10 and 11. And uh, who knows that the Lord's been up to a lot, hasn't he? Anyone bear testimony to that, that the Lord's been up to some good things in you? Yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you something, I, um, I've been feeling for a couple of weeks now that he, there's something that he wants to do to finish it off, to finish the job off. Next, next week, uh, Peter and the team are, are going to be taking the, uh, the lead in preaching on Sunday morning. That's going to be great. And I appreciate them doing that. It's going to be preparation for Easter. Uh, but it does feel to me, uh, I just sense that there's just something that the Lord wants to do to just round things off, round off the work that he's been do- doing over the last little bit. And um, so today really, uh, I want today's flavour from me to be a flavour of invitation. Um, you're invited into something. We have learned so much uh, over the last number of weeks about God coming to us. Um, it's the last week in John until late April. Um, today, uh, I think, is a day for action, to invite action. Um, it's the fourth and the last week in John chapter 11. Now, chapter 11 has been an amazing story, right? Incredible story. Um, just... I mean, it just has all the notes you'd expect from a movie in some senses. You know, you just go, man, there's someone really sick and, and, and someone who's really powerful loves him and his name's Lazarus. And, and so the, the sisters of the, the sick man send word to Jesus because surely he's going to come and do something uh, and he's powerful enough to do it. So they send this word to Jesus and he waits. Remember? He waits until... Uh, Till Lazarus is dead. Then he goes. And he shows up at the town. Um, sisters come out and uh, basically say, look, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. Uh, he tells them who he is. Uh, all hope is lost. Um, it appears anyway. And then Jesus steps up to the grave, tells them to move the stone away, calls Lazarus out and... Um, this scene soaked in death becomes a scene soaked in life, isn't it? It's an amazing, amazing story. Um, Jesus declares who he is. He cries at those who are crying. He gets angry with death and then he raises Lazarus from the dead. It's an amazing story. And, and if it was a movie, like I was sitting thinking about this the other day and I thought, if this was a movie, what would be the next scene, All right. And I reckon it would probably be a scene with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and Jesus just sitting around uh, in the shade somewhere drinking probably non-alcoholic wine, (laughs) chewing the fat, um, reflecting on what just happened, right? This is kind of the movie thing and and they'd be smiling, they'd be joking and and Mary and Martha would be like, "Uh, you thought you smelt bad, Lazarus, after that really hard day's work, but that was nothing, man. Uh, compared to when we moved that stone away, um, that was a whole nother level, you know. And, and they'd, they'd talk to Jesus and they'd, they'd joke a little bit with Jesus about um, how they were so frustrated with him that he didn't show up when he was supposed to show up. Um, but then it all kind of came out better in the end anyway. But none of this happens. Now, John is a masterful storyteller, but he doesn't end this way. In fact, the end of the story in John chapter 11 is quite an anticlimax. Um, here's, here's a summary of the story. We'll read this in a moment. Some people believe in Jesus. Some of them dob on him to the religious authorities and the plot to kill Jesus gets into full swing. It's disappointing, right? I mean, you, you could be forgiven for just going, really? Like, what the? What? Hey, what, what are we doing this for? Uh, but you need to know there's more going on here than meets the eye. So if you've got your Bibles with you, I'd love for you to open those up. We're going to read from John chapter 11. I'm just going to read the text for this morning and then we'll hook in. Uh, John 11 verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Snitches. 
Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called the meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they said. How is this, here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take, him, take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that is it better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem to their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Let's take a few steps back. (laughs) Maybe get a drone view. Uh, This whole thing's weird, right? Um, Jesus has just raised a dead man back to life. And and what's the response? Well, let's kill him. (laughs) Let's kill Jesus. Um, They dobbed on him. And it ended up in this, this death plot. Like, why would you do that, right? I think this is crazy. This sounds so crazy to me. You've got someone in your midst who can raise dead people who've been dead for four days. I mean, I expect that someone's going to go, Ah, Jesus, can you do two weeks? Because my mate Barry, like, he died a couple of weeks ago. Do you reckon you can... Could you just, could you come to his tomb and let's just see what you can do with that one? That would make sense, right? But they don't, at least not um, all of them. They don't, they don't see this person in front of them with this power that he's got. They don't see him truly. They dob him in and this plot to kill him gets underway. And it isn't the last time that we actually see this craziness. Look at this. This is one of the funniest verses in the Bible, right? I think. This is in John chapter 12, the very next chapter. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. You see that? You've got this situation, thanks. You've got this situation where you've got this person in front of you that can raise dead people, and they come up with this plan to kill him, right? And then people start going to Jesus because of Lazarus, and, and they go, well, let's kill him as well. Like, it doesn't make any sense, right? And, uh, oh, I mean, I can imagine Lazarus, when he hears about this plot, he just goes, <laughs> right? So like, that's not going to scare him, right? Because their thing is, like, we're going to intimidate this guy. We're going to take him out. It's like he's already died once and he's come back to life. It's not going to work. You know, you know what you notice here is there's, there's a whole bunch of potential killing going on right? And I don't know whether you see it, but it stands out so clearly to me. You've got this guy that's just been raised to the de- raised from the dead and this person who can do it and all we're talking about is killing at this point. It doesn't make any sense. It, it's like the question is, why would you kill guys for this? There's, there's no sense to it. And, but the answer is this, because that's the nature of sin and death. They don't make sense. And I want to run you through three things that I think we can see about sin and evil and death in this section of John chapter 11. Here's the first one. Sin never ultimately gets you where you want to go. You see that in the story here, right? Um, Because this is the weird thing about it. Even though sin never gets you where you want to go, there's an internal kind of logic to sin, right? Right? Here's what the chief priests and the Pharisees were up to. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. But you know what history tells us? It didn't work. It didn't work. The fall of Jerusalem happens before the end of the century and they end up losing Jesus 
the temple and their nation. Sinful desire will tell you that it's taking you somewhere that you want to go, but then it takes you somewhere you don't want to go. That's what it does. That's how it works. This is what you see in Proverbs chapter 14. The classic wise saying in Proverbs that so many of us know, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. You know, you, when you sit and you, you are tempted to do something, it all looks to make so much sense. But if it's sinful, if it's wrong, if it's not what God wants you to do, it takes you to death every single time. And, and there's a reason why sin um, looks like it's got the right way, but it leads you to death. And it's this, sin is a lie. That's what it is. Because, and that's why you do it, because you believe a lie. And I want to say to you this morning, almost every sin makes sense at the time. Almost every sin makes sense at the time in the midst of the temptation. But it's a lie and it's told by the father of lies and scripture teaches that over and over and over and over and over and over and over again that it doesn't take you where you want to go. And you might go, well, it kind of did take me where I wanted to go. And it's like, no, you didn't want the death that came at the end of it. No one wants to be in death. Sin isn't true. The second thing that we actually see, I think, in this passage about sin and evil is it's a wrecker. Sin is only focused on the destruction and corruption of what is true and good. Sin does not preserve good. It doesn't build good. It doesn't work toward good. It only wants to corrupt the good. And there's no other rhyme or reason to sin than corrupting good stuff. That's what it does. It's the point of it. And you can see that with Jesus, right? You, they've got someone standing in front of them who has just raised a dead man who'd been in the grave for four days. And what do they want to do? They want to wreck him. They want to kill him. And what's fascinating is if you go across to um, the book of Matthew and you look at a number of the accounts about people that wanted to kill Jesus, the, in the ESV in particular, the word, the Greek word um, that's translated as killing Jesus is a very strong one indeed. And have a look on the screen. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child, Jesus, as a baby, and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to what? Destroy him. This is the sense of the Greek word that's translated kill and destroy in our Bibles. Matthew chapter 12, verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Matthew 27, 20. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd, this is just prior to the crucifixion of Jesus, to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. See, they don't just want to take him out. They don't just want to silence him. They want to destroy him. And you just need to know that that's what sin does. And that's what's happening in John chapter 11. It just destroys stuff. It's like, whoever thought that killing the one who is life itself would be a good idea? But that's what sin does. It doesn't make any sense. It's like soaring off the branch that you're sitting on. You see that in Acts, one of the speeches in Acts. I think it's Peter from memory. He, he says that you killed the author of life. Now, there is no dumber thing that you could ever do than kill the author of life. True? It's a dumb thing to do. There's a reason why a lot of criminals are stupid, right? Because sin and evil is stupid. It doesn't care. It just wants to wreck good things. And here's the third thing I think we see in John chapter 11. Uh, sin and death always go together. You know, in John 11, we see people sinfully turning on Jesus. They dominate him. The authorities plan to kill him. And I just I'll, I want to say to you this morning, while it, it doesn't always end in murder, there is a connection between sin and death all the way through the biblical story. 
and there's a connection between sin and death in your life and my life. It's just how it is. It's nothing new. Sin and death have gone together since the very beginning. There's always a link between sin and death. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 to 17, before sin came into the world, God warned Adam and Eve, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from the tree in any garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat, of, eat from it, you will certainly die. If you turn from me and you disobey me, death comes. And I want to say this to you, if you're in the middle of temptation right now, you just need to know that death is always connected to sin. It always is. Right? I remember years ago hearing a, um, a preacher say that legitimate pleasure is when you pay the price for the pleasure before you get it. Right? Which is basically the, the waiting, it's being patient, it's having it in the right place. He went on to say illegitimate pleasure is when you pay the price afterwards. And the price after illegitimate pleasure is death. You hear me? It's death. It's death. And that's what we see in Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is what? Death. That's your payment. So if you get up tomorrow morning and you just go, I'm just going to disobey God and I'm going to sin all week. Do you know what your payment's going to be for that at the end of the week and along the way? Death. That's what you get paid. You know, and sometimes it's weird because we can get in places where we are tempted by something and we kind of jump into it and then we go, oh my word, where did all this death come from? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? And you just go, I didn't want this. You just go, well, that's what you get paid. You know, if you go to work, you know, as I, I was a young guy, I'd, Part of one of my jobs is pushing trolleys for Kmart, all right? You push trolleys and you do it enough hours and you get paid. You get a certain amount per hour. I think it was about 35 cents an hour. It's Kmart. And you get paid at the end. It's the wages. The wages of sin is death. And so here's, this, this probably feels very dark, right? And I'm just letting, it stays dark for a while yet. Okay, um, and I'm, I'm not, please don't hear me. My point today is not beating you about the head. It's helping you to see things accurately and rightly and inviting you into something better, all right? But we'll get to the better thing a little bit later on. Um, here's, here's the reality. Sin unleashes death on the world. So think for a moment. No one's had a perfect week, all right? Where did you blow it? And I'll say to you that when you blew it, you, you unleash some death on the world. Sure, on yourself. Um, but sin always has an effect on other people, whether it be because you don't do the things that you should do or you're doing some things that you shouldn't do. This is a little haunting, isn't it? Because um, here's the thing... Uh, Sin and death do a wickedly insane work. They just do. Like I said before, it doesn't make any sense to kill the resurrection and the life and to kill a resurrected guy. It doesn't make any sense. But that's the point, right? That's the point of sin and evil. Because at the centre of it, sin and evil and death, they're just wreckers. That's all they, they don't care about anything else but just being a wrecker. I remember um, at high school, they, uh, we had this day, this is down in Sydney, Carlingford High School. Uh, we had this day where it was um, kind of a flex day. All, all the kids came to school. I'm sure that we were in free dress and it was like there was all these fun activities planned, right? And um, one of the things that they organised is they organised for this old car that had the windows taken out to be brought in from the wreckers and people could pay a small amount of money and grab a sledgehammer and just lay into this thing, all right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've had, you've had the opportunity to do that, right? And, and the, the reason why there's some attraction to it is like, who would do that? Who would actually get a sledgehammer and just lay into their own car? 
But this is the reality, isn't it? That sin and evil don't just lay into something that's wrecked and that's a bomb. They lay into everything. They lay into things that are really precious, things that are really, really valuable. They lay into the very best things. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? They, they lay into the very best things and they corrupt the very best things. Sin and death at their core are irrational. They don't make sense. They wreck whatever is good for no good reason. Now, I'm going to wind this point out here by um, speaking directly to some people who find themselves in a couple of different contexts. All right? And if you live in a fallen world like I do, then you've been in both of these contexts from one point in time to another, and the chances are that you're in one of them probably even right now. And in fact, I'd add even one more thing, that some, it's, it's not uncommon to be in both at the same time. And here's, here's the two categories, sinner and death taster. Sinner and death taster. Everyone's a sinner. If you've come to this church thinking that you're going to have some pastors that are perfect, you've got the wrong place. All right? But good luck finding one that has got pastors that are perfect. Pastors here aren't perfect. The elders aren't perfect. In fact, all of you aren't. All right, so we can all just get together and enjoy the fact that none of us have got it together um, and be chilled about that. Um, but uh, but let, me, let, me, um, let me say this about sinning. Whenever you sin, you sow death around you. That's what you do. Uh, you, you chuck it at other people. <laughs> uh, you foist it on other people. Um, I, this week I had a very, very long day on one particular day and I was very tired. And um, one of my sons came up to me literally within five minutes of me getting home and asked me something at the worst possible time. All right? Have you ever had something like that? Something comes and it comes at the worst possible time, either at work or at home or at school, right? And I could see I was so incredibly close to blowing up at him and getting angry, right? The temptation was strong. It's like, get away from me. Get over there and do something else. Don't come and ask me that now. Now, I didn't, but it was close, right? And, and you know, have you ever... Have you ever you ever had the, something, a near miss, where, where you, like you felt the wind of it? I had it at school when I was teaching, you'd be on yard duty, and you just hear this whoosh, past your ear, and it's like a soccer ball or a basketball, you know, and you just go, that was, that was really close. Um, that's, that's what it was like. Um, now, thanks to Jesus, I... I had enough sense to not fall for it. Now, I've fallen for it many times, but on that occasion, it was a points victory, okay? I won't say that everything inside of me was uh, exactly where it needed to be, but um, by the grace of God, I was able to hold the wild horses back inside, okay? But, but imagine if I didn't. What happens? Well, I just chuck some death right in my son's face, what happens when you don't at work? Well, you just chuck some death in someone's face. That's what you do. That's how, that's how sin works. And that, that's a simple example, right? The more serious sin is, the more death you chuck in someone's face. Now, we've got six sinners in our house, right? How many you got in yours? Bet you there's a bit of death that gets chucked around. From time to time. Now, this may all seem a bit morbid, right? But you get the point, don't you? If you're a sinner, you're a death farmer. You're a sinner, you're a death chucker. You're a sinner, you're a death exhaler. The more serious the sin, the more potent the death, the harder it is to handle. The Pharisees and the high priests are death farmers, death chuckers, and death exhalers. 
what the sinners need to do. Uh, they need to stop. They need to repent. That's not everyone this morning. That's probably not the prime thing that uh, all of you are experiencing at the moment, and I appreciate that because people aren't just uh, sinners, they're also sufferers. And the other category here is a death taster. And uh, living in a fallen world, you've tasted death. You've had death chucked at you. Uh, we live in a world where death is everywhere. Some of it we generate ourselves and the rest of it is in the air. Uh, and it's important to say at this point in time, there is so much death going on around the place that, um, you know, even though sin and death are connected, it's not necessarily your sin being connected to the death you're experiencing because there's death that kind of happens all over the place. Um, sometimes it's foisted on us by other sinners. Sometimes we bring it upon ourselves. Sometimes it's just the world that we live in. Um, no matter where it comes from, we all know what it's like to taste death, right? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? You just know what it's like. It's like whoa, man. Um, a mate of mine down in, um, in Sydney, when I lived in Sydney, was a practical joker, and we pulled off some great stunts uh, together, and they were very, very funny, at least to us. Um, but one of his favourite ones was taking Stop and Grow uh, on church camps. And stop and grow is like the stuff that you paint on someone's fingernails to stop them from chewing them. It tastes disgusting. So we'd all be sitting there at the table having dinner. Someone would duck off to the, uh, the bathrooms and he'd whip out this stop and grow in his, um, out of his pocket and he'd paint it on the knives and forks and, and uh, spoons of the person who ducked off to the bathroom, right? And, of course, they'd come back and they'd take another mouthful of food. They'd go, oh, this is disgusting. Is yours all right? That, that was this. We tried not to laugh too hard. Um, but it's disgusting, isn't it? Um, you have death that comes at you. It's, it's not, it is not a fun experience. It's not like you're going, I'll go to that restaurant again, right? That was really good. And one of the, um, the questions that people ask um, in the middle of tasting death is, is this one, like, why is this happening to me? That's a question that people ask in the middle of suffering. Um, and I think part of the reason why people ask that question, it comes back to the nature of sin and evil being a wrecker, like there isn't a good reason. So why would you take something perfectly good and just wreck it? I remember uh, after I'd had my first house built, um, I, um, I started planting plants, right? And uh, you don't have to bring me any this last time I said this, people brought passion fruit stuff for me, but I like passion fruit, right? So... Uh, I had passion fruit biscuits and everything coming for the next week. I should have talked about how I like gold bullion or something like that. So I got this border collie who has got ADD, like every single border collie that's ever been born. Um, and great dog, but I bought this new uh, passion fruit plant. I attended to it. It's a mulchster. And it's like, this is going to be awesome. I can just see myself sitting around eating passion fruit. And pretty much on the first night, he just gets to the middle of the night, everyone's asleep, he's got nothing to do, and so he just loses his mind, right? And he, he totally destroys my passion fruit vine, right? And uh, I go out in the morning, and he always had a conscience, right? It's like, I, I didn't, everyone was asleep, and he kind of looked up at me, and it's like there was nothing else to do, and I, I just, I'm sorry, right? But it's too late now, and I've got this stick in it in the ground, you know, and there was part of it for me, and I don't want to overplay it, but it's because it's an example, right, but there's part of it for me where I just went, you just wreck something perfectly good. Why would you do that? You know, and there's some of that kind of question, isn't there, in the middle of those who are, who are tasting death, it's like, why would you do that? And, and we long for some meaning and some purpose in this thing that has no meaning. It's insane. Sin and evil just wreck stuff because it's like to wreck stuff. You know, you, if you've ever asked that question, like, I want some meaning, there's got to be some rhyme or reason to it. it was, I talk to people all the time and they go, this, this person was a good person. And, and they're not even saying that they're a, a morally perfect person like Scripture talks. They're just, a, they're just a decent person. Why is it that that thing is happening to them? And of course, they're a sinner and all that sort of stuff. But can you hear that note in there? It's like I'm trying to make sense of something that's just wrecking something that I think is good. But there's no logic and there's no good reason to evil and sin and death. They just wreck stuff. If you're tasting death at the moment, 
Um, and it tastes disgusting. Um, you need to know that Jesus understands you. He understands you better uh, than you probably know. Um, the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You, you have a saviour, you've got a shepherd who has tasted death, been affected by it. In fact, has tasted it far more deeply and far more profoundly than you and I ever will. But in the room here, there's probably people feeling the sin aside, probably some feeling the death taste aside and some feeling both. Um, number two. Inevitable death. Now, it's just going to get a little bit worse before it gets better. All right. I've got some bad news for you. Um, what kind of bad news? Uh, you can't avoid death. You can't avoid death. And you're, some of you are probably going, thinking about Benjamin Franklin. Is anyone thinking about the Benjamin Franklin quote at this point in time? There's only two certainties in life. Death and taxes, you know? And you might even have a bit of a qualifier going around in your head where you go, well, maybe you can avoid death um, if Jesus comes back before you die. But I'm talking about a death that's much broader than that. So I want to ask you a few questions. You don't need to answer these out loud. Here's the first one. These are going to get progressively harder, right? Because I'm going to tweak this question. Okay, and some of you go, yeah, we've been around here long enough and we know what you do, Peter. Uh, do you want life? It's just yes or no. Answer it. Okay, here's, here's the next question. It's going to let's tweak it a little bit. Do you want the life Jesus provides? Here's the next one. He's tweaking it again. Do you want the resurrection life Jesus provides? Now, just going to help you out a little bit here. Because we, who would say, let's, let's just have a quick show, a show of hands, who would, who would say that the rising, of his, the rising of Lazarus from the dead is actually, that's pretty cool? Who, who would who'd be down for that? Yeah, cool. All right. I'll pray for everyone who didn't put their hand up in a minute. Because um, the life at the end is pretty sweet, right? And we might even say, um, can we have some more of those, please, Jesus? <laughs> right? Let's have some more resurrection from death, please, Jesus. But, but I, I want you to notice something about resurrection life, right? And, and, and here it is. You can't have a resurrection without a death. Remember? Um, death runs the whole way through this chapter. You've got the death of hope for Mary and Martha. You've got the, the, the grief, which was a kind of death brought on by Lazarus's death, the physical death. But here's, here's the thing. We love, we love the life, right? But for Lazarus to get resurrection life, what has to happen? Audience participation time. What has to happen? He has to die. Right? He has to die. If he didn't die, he wouldn't have been resurrected. This is all very straightforward, isn't it? He just wouldn't have been. He'd still be alive. He'd be sipping non-alcoholic pina colada somewhere. Right? I want to ask you one more question. Right? And tweaking it again. Do you want the life Jesus offers, even if it means death will be involved? All right, now, this is a different question, right? <laughs> Any hesitation? Probably. Why? Because death isn't fun. No one who's dying or has died looks like they're having fun. True? It just doesn't look fun. And some of you, even right now, you might be going, oh, 
I'd be happy with just a little less life that Jesus can give if I didn't have to do the death. Is, it, is anyone with me on that? I think that sometimes. I go, oh, I could probably be happy with a little bit less. Um, but you need to know something. Um, you, you have to get this really, really clear. And this is 100% gospel truth. Death is unavoidable for everyone. All right? Death is unavoidable for everyone. Everyone has to deal with death. doesn't matter whether you've got a lot of money or hardly any money. Whether you're successful or unsuccessful, however you define that. Let me give you some scriptures that help you to see this. All right? We've got the one that I mentioned before out of Genesis 2 verse 17, which certainly is talking about physical death, but I don't think that that's the only thing God's talking about. I think he's talking about all kinds of death. You get to Jesus in uh, Matthew's Gospel and he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. What's he saying? You've got to die. You've got to die. So the first one is kind of like everyone's going to face death. There's like a physical death plus all other types of death. The second one is like death to self. I'm giving you options of, of how you can die. The third one there, this is, a, this is freaky and I kind of... It's not closely related to what I'm talking about, but it's freaky and it kind of points back to John chapter 10. So I thought I'd throw this one in. Uh, People, despite their wealth, do not endure. They are like the beasts that perish. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves. Listen to this. They are like sheep and are destined to die. Death will be their shepherd. Their forms will decay in the grave, far from their princely mansions. That's, that's a shepherd you don't want, right? And then here's another type of death that the book of Revelation talks about. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all lies, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second one, death. All right, let me sum it up for you. And I'm going to confuse you a little bit, and that's intentional. Unless Jesus comes back first, you will physically die, right? But even if he comes back first before you physically die, if you haven't died to yourself, you're going to die in the second death. You see that? That's, that's being separated from him forever. So here's your options. You either physically die and die to self, or Jesus comes back before you physically die and you only have to die to self, Or you don't die to yourself and you end up dying twice. Right? That's kind of it. Uh, Those are kind of your options. You can't get away with it. Sorry, you can't get away from it. You can't avoid death. Right? Now, this this is pretty dark. And when it gets dark, what should you do? Probably watch a clip from the castle. Uh, So we're going to do that. Um, So if you don't know... Um, The Castle is an Australian movie about Dale Kerrigan and his house. It was near an airport that was getting resumed. And if you haven't seen it, you probably should get um, an edited copy that doesn't have so many swear words in it, but it's it's classically Australian. And uh, this is a a classic scene from In It, um, and and you'll see the relevance of this uh, in a moment. So let's uh, let's play that. Oh, this is beautiful, Dale. What do you call these things again? Rissoles. Everybody cooks rissoles, Dale. Yeah, yeah, but it's what you do with them. Mum reckons the trick is you don't use minced meat. She gets topside and crushes it. Is that right, Dale? Yeah, well, it does. She gets suicide and she'll crush that too. Do you get it? What's, what's the key line in that? And you actually hear it more than once. It's what you do with it. It's what you do with it. And I want to say to you, as we lead into the last point, this is critical when it comes to death, all right? Death is there, you can't avoid it, but it's what you do with it that counts. Um, It's what totally matters if you can't avoid it. So here's the last thing we're going to look at today is uh, death versus death. As I said before, the end of this chapter, at first glance, appears to be an anticlimax and a bit of a red herring. The one who is the resurrection life and the life has just raised someone from the dead. Now they're plotting to kill him. Uh, But it isn't an anticlimax, and it isn't a red herring. What John's doing makes all sorts of sense. 
what is going on here and what is about to happen to Jesus is exactly what just happened to Lazarus himself. Here's the point. How do you get to resurrection life? By going through death. That's how you get there. And that's exactly what Jesus is about to do. You know, if, if resurrection life is going to abound to the world, and there are a lot of people here who love Jesus and his life is abounded to them, he gets it by going through death. He needs to go to the cross, he needs to embrace death, and he does. And the result is that three days later, there's this abundant resurrection and this life that, that flies out to everyone. And all these death chuckers now have got this life coming toward them. But here's the thing. No one else gets life if he doesn't embrace death. The pathway to life is through death. How does he do it? How does he kill death? Well, he uses death to kill death. That's what he does. You see this in Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. The ESV is even stronger than that. Listen to this. Through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It's kind of like... Jesus goes in and has this rumble with death and somehow he turns the weapon that death has back on itself and kills death. But how does he do that? Well, he has to die. He has to die. And what's the result? Abundant life (laughs) for anyone. For anyone who wants it, you can have abundant life. He won it for us by going through death. You know, we... Easter's coming. We all love Easter Sunday, don't we? It's a good day. I mean, if you're hosting at church on Easter Sunday, it's like the easiest one of the year, right? Because the crowd's warmed up and everyone's excited about the fact that Jesus has been raised from the grave. But you can't have Easter Sunday without Good Friday. You can't have a resurrection without a death. You can't have life without going through death. Death always comes before resurrection. One of my uh, favourite authors is a guy called uh, Paul Miller. In one of his books, he unpacked this thing that he calls the J-curve, and I'm going to put it on the screen here. Um, And then he wrote a whole book called The J-curve. But here's here's the Um, J-curve. And and what the J-curve is about is about how life comes to you, right? So the way life comes with Jesus is he dies... And then he rises, right? And, and in a sense, the, the life that he has, I mean, this is a weird thing to say, and I'm not saying that he isn't full of life, but the status and the life and the position that he has is even more exalted after the death than what it was beforehand, if that were even possible. You kind of see this a little bit in Philippians 2. It kind of blows the mind a little bit, but in Philippians 2, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, exclamation mark, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. He was already high, but he went into death and he was resurrected and God exalted him. The shape of Jesus' life here is the same shape he wants our lives to be in everything, right? Um, Now, Everyone wants life, right? And why have I put a red arrow in there? Because I, I talk to so many people and I'm the same, right? Where you just go, I'm in this place and I'm not really happy with this place I'm in and I can see over there in the distance this great life and I just want to go from here to there. Thanks. And, and like I kind of in a nice way go, well, you you're going to have to die. I know, I don't, no, you don't understand what I'm saying, right? What I'm saying is I can see this great life over there and I've got a little bit of life here, I, at least I think, and I just want to get over to that 
that bit. I want more. Well, you, you, you'll, have to, you'll have to die. You have to forsake your plans, your dreams. The only way to move where Jesus is is to go down into death. You have to go down into the bottom of the J curve. You, you always have to have a death to have a resurrection. We all want a resurrection without the death. Because <laughs> death hurts. And death's not fun. But you don't get a resurrection. You don't get resurrection life without the death. It's just the way that God works. And so our part of our problem, part of our bind, is that we just try to do our best to hold on to life. Right? It's like... We just somehow we just gotta we just gotta keep what we've got, and if we can get that little bit over there somehow, if we can just grasp that, we'll we'll be okay. And you can you can see that, right? In John eleven, um, it's better for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation perish. You can see that in the religious leaders; they're just going, "We just have to hang on to what we've got." And and in one sense, it's it's understandable, but. You'll probably be glad I'm not preaching for a few weeks after this one, but he, I want to say this to you. Um, the tendency to want to grasp onto life and not enter into death only dooms you to die. You hear that? Your tendency to grasp onto life and not enter with Jesus into death, death to self, death to your future, death to everything that you want, only dooms you to die. I remember um, when I was a young guy, uh, I can't even remember where it was, but I remember having this instruction about, look, if you're out in the, uh, in the ocean and um, you get in trouble and, and the lifesaver comes out to get you, what do you have to do? You have to be as still as you can and let them do what they need to do. Why? Because they said, they said, if you struggle and if you grasp Onto them, you'll drown both of you. We have a tendency to try and lay hold of life without dying to self, without joining ourselves to Jesus in his death. This is the great irony of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. See that? If you want to hang on to life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for him, if you die to yourself, if you enter with him into death and and your own plans and purposes and your own desires, what happens? You get life. Whenever you grasp for life, you inevitably get death. But if you embrace death, you see this? Death. <laughs> Death can be your friend. You, not in the sense that you really like it, but it can work in your favour, right? Because if you embrace death, the death to self, you get life and you get life abundantly. So, if you want life, you want to be a life farmer, a life chucker around the place, a life exhaler, you need to embrace death. You need to embrace it. And I wonder how you're going with that at the moment. You will see this shape, and this is one thing that Paul Miller says, and um, his Jacob book is a very long book. It's a good book, but it's a very long book. And I found myself about a third of the way in just going, I'm in, Paul, I'm with you, all right? Uh, Because he goes on and he just lays out passage after passage after passage of this J-curve-shaped life. Because if it was good enough for Jesus, and if it's the way that life comes for Jesus, it'll be good enough for us. I want to finish with this scripture. Second Corinthians four eight to twelve. We we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. 
perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. You see all the death going on here? We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. And this is the crowning sentence of this section. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And I would love nothing more than for all the people who call Restoration Church home to be life chuckers, life farmers. I'd love nothing, nothing more than to know that the elders are life chuckers and life farmers and life exhalers and the pastors and the kids' church leaders and people in community groups, that there's just life going on all over the place. But you can see what Paul's saying here, that the way that you get there is by death. Death to your own stuff. Death to your own plans. Death to self. Remember right back at the beginning of John, maybe it's too long ago for you, it's over two years ago when we started, but John was actually counting up the signs that showed who Jesus was. Okay? And he said, this is the first sign that Jesus did, dot, dot, dot. And then he'd say, this is the second sign that Jesus did, dot, dot, dot. And then he stopped saying it. And I think the reason why he stopped saying it is because you're meant to keep counting. Um, this, this is the last sign uh, of G- Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Um, it's the last one. And I think it makes all sorts of sense that it's the last one because this is the last one that he does before he personally himself dives into the very thing that he's just been doing with Lazarus. The next miracle, the next sign, the ultimate sign is his death and his resurrection. Isn't it? And then life just going everywhere, all over the place. And it started with 12, and then we're up to billions now. So uh, you, you do not want to underestimate the resurrection life that can come through you when you embrace death and unite yourself to Jesus. It will stun you, and it will go above and beyond what you can imagine. <laughs>